Welcome back to We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling. Growing up, if I needed to know the difference between how to dice an onion and how to mince an onion, I called my mother or my sister. Now I Google it, like everyone else. We don't just Google definitions, we Google advice. We search for ratings, rankings, and reviews before buying anything or hiring anyone. We search YouTube and TikTok for explanations and for tutorials that we used to turn to our friends for. Hell, we use apps not just because they're wildly convenient, but because they help us bypass the friction that comes from unchoreographed human interaction. We live in a world that celebrates self-sufficiency and independence, and it is creating a culture of people who avoid asking for help. From the fear of appearing weak or needy to the concern that we're imposing when we do ask for help, I often find that my clients never even consider asking for assistance when they're in situations that objectively warrant at least a second set of hands, if not another brain to help strategize a solution. Maybe they're in the middle of a move. Or they need to find a new job, but they won't ask their network if anyone would look over the resume. Or they're in the middle of making a meal and they run out of an ingredient and it never occurs to them to ask the neighbor to borrow the thing that they need because they don't even know who their neighbors are. And if they do, they don't know them. Our resistance to asking each other for help, and I'm not talking about the kind of help I provide as a therapist. I'm talking about the simple human interaction of asking a person for advice or to borrow something. Our resistance to asking for that kind of advice is epitomized in the ways we outsource to technology, and we do it across all parts of life. But there's a downside to bypassing requests for help. We're becoming more isolated than ever. Collectively, we have an epidemic of loneliness. We had it before the pandemic, and since then it has ballooned. We know that loneliness is correlated to depression, anxiety, and substance abuse, and that's just on the mental health side of things. Our physical health is also negatively impacted by loneliness. From high blood pressure to weakened immune systems to cognitive decline, loneliness is almost always an element in deaths of despair. There's something ironic about our quest to become rigorously independent individuals, and the consequence that we're becoming increasingly more lonely as a society. And that's what I wanna talk about today. So you can decide for yourself if following your GPS five miles out of the way is worth it to avoid having to ask a stranger for directions, even if it means we become more and more isolated from each other. Here to help me with this conversation is my niece and co-host Ashton Tardiff. So how does the culture and the environment that we grow up in impact our willingness to ask for help? So I'm speaking about American culture here because that's the one that I'm most familiar with. We, by and large, are a culture that values individualism over collectivism. We prioritize the needs of individuals above the needs of the group, and we never saw more of that. We've had like the most recent awfully illuminated example of that in COVID with people's resistance to getting vaccines because of how they worried it was going to impact them as individuals and really resisting the impact that not getting a vaccine was going to have on people who are immune compromised for all the reasons, elderly, babies, lots of people could not get vaccines or even with vaccines were severely immunocompromised and that epitomized the extent to which we care about individuals more than 
the group in this country. We're all about individuals. We're all about self-care, self-esteem, self-reliance, selfie, self-love. Um, <laughs> and, and it's not bad because like, look, I would argue that there have been points in history where we've been too group oriented. What we did was we've taken some really good ideas. We do have to take care of ourselves. We can't mm -hmm. expect each other to do everything for us. So we've taken this good idea of we've got to take care of ourselves and meet our own needs, and we've overcorrected. And it's to the point where we've become a society of people who try to be so independent, and that's impractical, and it's impossible. It sets us up for such failure because physically we rely on our neighbors, our government, and others for so many things. Like, Try meeting your own needs 100% of the time. And I literally don't mean mm. you. Not that you ever would, Ashton, because you're not a survivalist. <laughs> no, not at all. Not I barely like camping. Ditto. Yeah. So the point of the matter is try meeting your own needs 100% of the time for like shelter, your food, energy, fuel, medical services, transportation, your roads. Like most of us don't even know where our garbage gets placed once it's picked up from mm -hmm. in front of our dwelling. We are not an independent society. We are interdependent. That's a really good point. We are, from an early age, told to figure ourselves out by ourselves. But I think there's also another layer to this because there's a stigma in asking for help and like even sharing with people that we're having a hard time. And I also want you to touch on here if there is a difference between females and males when it comes to this stigma, because I feel like there definitely is, especially around mental health and emotions. Yeah, around anything. We know there's a huge double standard. We expect men to be the most, particularly like traditional masculine men, the stereotype, the tropes. We expect them to need nothing from anyone. We expect them to need nothing emotionally, nothing physically, and it set them up in it's part of the reason why we have so many deaths of despair and they tend mm -hmm. to be men between the ages, I think, listen, this may not be exactly right, but roughly between the ages of like 45 and 65, that's when the majority of deaths of despair happen, suicides and, and accidental mm. overdoses. And men are so much more likely to engage in those than women because we put all this pressure on them to act as if they need nothing. And that's such a setup for mm -hmm. isolation, depression, anxiety. It's terrible what we do to them. And it's also, I think, very unfair. Why? And this might be kind of a hot take, but for all of the women who are fighting for feminism, which arguably every woman should be fighting for feminism, but the actual definition of feminism is equality for both of the sexes. So if you're going to be fighting for feminism and for women's rights and for women's independence, we also need to take a step back and look at men who are struggling and how they've also been kind of put in a space where they've been fighting an uphill battle as well emotionally. And mental health for men is something that I mean, I personally feel really passionately about. And I really would love for the conversation to keep opening up around them to get help and removing this stigma. So I think that's really important as well. Yeah, um, I agree. We should have an episode on it in the future. Absolutely. I would love to do that. Moving outside of stigmas and kind of gender roles here, there's another huge element at play that hasn't always been at play and it's evolving. And that is social media 
and technology. So do you think that this evolution and the growth of it has had an impact on our willingness to share our struggles and ask for help? Absolutely. Listen, who is posting a video of a fight with their partner? I'm not. Are you? Oh, oh, absolutely not. And also not posting a, a video of myself sitting on the ground surrounded by bills that like are difficult to pay. Like none of us are engaging in that type of social media posting. And what mm. it results in is that each of us, because those are very, we all fight with our partners, we all have financial stress and strain. We all have the same human experiences to different degrees and different things provoke those difficulties in us, but we all, the human experience is universal. So the in the absence of that transparency and showing the reality of what life really looks like, all of us are sitting alone in our difficulties, feeling like we're the only ones who feel that way. And right. I have to tell you, I'm so grateful that my job is to be a therapist because I get to hear firsthand how universal our struggles are. And I so wish my clients could be a fly on my wall so they could feel less judgmental of the struggles that they experience because in the wave of social media and the absence of posting all the things that we experience versus just the positive or the ideal things that we experience, people are left feeling all alone, like they're the only mm -hmm. ones going through difficulties. And that's just not the case. We're all feeling the same things. On your point that most of the time when we do go on social media, even when we follow people that we find inspirational, we're looking at shiny, pretty things and we're seeing aspirational things. And I think it's important to kind of be able to understand that that is not always reality. But that kind of brings me to this next question for you is, do you think that it's important that we as people start to be more vulnerable also on social media? Is that something that you think that maybe could be a positive shift for us as a collective? So here I'm going to collaborate with you because I think that you know more about social media than I do by the difference in our age and the eras in which we were each raised. You're definitely a subject expert in that far more than I am. I think there's a sweet spot because I don't know about you, but I have seen, particularly before Instagram, like early on in Facebook, those cringy videos where people were like empathy sourcing, crowdsourcing empathy oh. and, and stuff Ooh. like that. I mean, that can be cringy. Yes. It's really, really hard. Look, we all have more followers than we have real friends. Mm. Everyone does. I mean, in, unless you're someone who follows nobody or you literally just follow your tightest people, which is interesting. I need to make a, uh, what are they called? A Finsta. You need to make I a Finsta. <laughs> or a close friends where you can like literally tailor the type of content that you only want a curated list of people to see. And um, I personally do that. And can I just say, it's like a whole different outlet. Well, that's why I wanted this to be more of a collaborative conversation on this mm -hmm. point, because I don't have that. And if I did, maybe I would be more transparent. But mm. I do think that there is a tipping point between appropriate disclosure online and like hemorrhaging online. And then people yeah. don't know what to do. They don't know what to do for you. Yeah. And, and I worry that that can look attention seeking. Or so, TMI. 
Like some things I will say, you you just don't need to share publicly. It's just a double bind. It's a double bind. I yeah. feel like people can't win either way. We're not posting enough real stuff about ourselves. But then if you go too far into the self-disclosure, you're doing the cringy stuff. You're, you're doing like crowdsourcing. Digitally trauma dumping. So here's what I'll say. Coming from someone who decided to launch this podcast with an episode about how they had their heart absolutely trampled um, by infidelity with someone that they loved, um, which is probably the most vulnerable thing that I've done online. Um, I think that if you are going to be vulnerable online, there needs to be a takeaway for people if there can be. Like, I think it needs to be from a place where you're sharing it in order to either help or inspire other people. Like, I didn't just get on Instagram Live and start sobbing that I had just found out that my boyfriend of two years had been having an affair for five months. You know, I, I had taken time to sit down, ask for help amongst my community and look within myself and then decide that, you know, maybe this could help somebody. So... And you give yourself a beat to process it yes, first before absolutely. like you knew the story and you mm -hmm. had processed it for like what three or four months before we taped that? Yeah. Yeah. And I also was able to identify the lessons from it. So, episode one. Episode one, everybody. It is, yeah, it's it's a good one. But I think that's exactly why I asked you. That's actually the perfect answer. If I had zoomed out and had like time to think about that ahead of time, if I had landed on the perfect answer, that would have been it. Yes. If you're going to share on social media, ideally there's a takeaway. But mm -hmm. then that means that you're not sharing in the moment. You've already processed it and you're there's enough distance between the event and the time that you post it that you can identify the takeaway. I, I question the same thing as somebody has been writing a blog since 2010 a very long time. Very. Peri periodically, I force myself to write blogs about personal struggles that I've experienced that they've been very helpful to me, very cathartic for me. But I always have to land on that takeaway because it can't just be for me. If there's no purpose for you, then I don't post it. Mm -hmm. I don't publish it. So that that yeah. is exactly right. I love that answer. Thanks. There's also another element to kind of technology here, and that's because we have an overwhelming wealth of information available to us online. So for example, if I'm feeling like I'm struggling with something personally, I am probably going to try to Google it first. Hell, maybe I'll chat GPT it. Who knows? To try and see what I can come up with to see if I can solve this issue on my own. Why? Because I want to see if it's something that, A, I am capable of identifying and fixing on my own before I burden others, A. B, I also think there's levels to this, though. Is this an emotional issue or is this something in my physical vicinity that I'm struggling with, like a financial problem or a problem with like figuring out something with my health or scheduling, you know, things like that. I think there's like two categories here. Part of it just might be my drive for independence, which, as mm -hmm. you said earlier, we're taught early on, but some people do innately have that stronger than others. I guess my question ultimately is, do you think that there should be a level of self-discovery and research before you go to others? So you said something in your answer. You said, I don't want to be a burden. And the thing is, that is the biggest driving force and why we don't turn to each other and why we don't ask one another for answers first. The problem with going to Dr. Google <laughs> or like I, I have a funny bump on, on my arm and I need to know what that means. 
the amount of uh, misinformation that we wind up stumbling upon because oh, most yes. of us do not have media literacy. I mean, I will tell you, here's the biggest thing that I got from getting a PhD at NYU. I learned how to use Google. And I'm not kidding you or being flippant <laughs> about the extent to which that is a valuable skill set. I can research and source things so quickly and mm -hmm. I can identify bullshit sources very quickly, which the vast majority of Google searches, what they give you are bullshit sources. Like, yeah. I know how to do that. And I never thought that that would be such an important skill. Little did I know that, like, I was graduating at the beginning of the information age and, like, I, I would be using this skill forever. I would have thought, wow, I'm going to come out of PhD school. I'm going to be a really good therapist. Um, <laughs> I mean, that is a practice which I continue to endeavor to improve upon. But by and large, the greatest skill set I got was Googling things. And most people don't have that skill set. It is very noisy online. Yep. And so when we turn to, Google for our answers, most people don't know how to source out reputable sources and rule out bullshit sources. So if you could turn to an elder, which I am, which your mom is, you have other aunts. So if you turn to one of us, the chances that we've lived through the thing that you're trying to navigate the chances of that happening are so much greater. And the answers that we can provide you with, look, do I want my phone blowing up 24-7? Obviously not. But, you know, you're not somebody who you are a very good, innate problem solver. I do think we wind up jacking our nervous systems up by getting misinformation online rather than turning towards each other. I think oftentimes we wind up feeling more alone after a search and it oftentimes will raise more questions than answers. And we walk away from that whole endeavor not feeling satisfied, and certainly not feeling better connected. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like yeah. lived, lived experience. I really just brought that up as well, too, because with the, the absolute meteoric rise of TikTok and the way that its algorithm works, it quite literally knows exactly what you're going through. And it targets you with content creators who may be not veritable sources of help. And I've seen this many times, especially when I was going through the breakup, I was having people just spew advice and support at me. And I was like, wait, who are you? Why would I believe this? You're saying it's so like it to be true. Like they know it for a fact to be true. And that is so easy to spread misinformation and to lead people astray. I think it actually can be helpful because I have stumbled across content creators and videos that have been immensely helpful in teaching me certain things and takeaways. But to your point, it seems like we need to couple that with also our trusted inner circle and our elders and confiding in people, our tribe. And I think it's probably an important thing for us to do an episode, um, if it doesn't put you to sleep, on media literacy and how to wow. source things. Because that's imperative. Like some of the biggest influencers and most downloaded podcast hosts, they have no credentials to do mm -hmm. what they're doing. They're just relatable. And yep. they're speaking so matter-of-factly and it's really dangerous. It's truly dangerous. It is. And, you know, working in PR for me has actually given me, as you were saying, like, obviously your PhD probably drilled in a bit more of discernment with the topics that you were researching. But I am still learning in my career, like to this day, as Google and AI evolves, 
how to spot something and understand if this was contrived from like the depths of someone's Reddit thread, or is this actual verified information? And it's so important because people who don't understand it contribute to our collective issues and our collective misunderstandings of so many things. So yeah, I think that would be a great episode. Yeah. So aside from the fact that our media literacy, which is not universally, we don't all universally know how to source things. We don't all universally know how to figure out what online is valuable and we can follow it without even blinking and what is suspect. The absence of turning towards each other is resulting in us being progressively more isolated. And this loneliness epidemic is no joke. I want to I wanna pose another question here. And this is for people, I've often felt this way, where you know that you need help or you need clarity or help finding answers and you want to reach out to people, but you feel that perhaps your network of people are not equipped or they are unable to provide you with the answers or support that you need because there's a different layer to that. Because there have been times where I've been struggling with something and I'm not sure if, like, I want to share it with people. I want to get it off my chest. I don't want to carry it alone, but I also could find myself sharing it with them and then walking away with no real solutions. So do you think that the act of sharing something in and of itself, even though you may not walk away with clear answers, solutions, or a path forward is still helpful? Yeah, think about it, because at least there's a person there holding space for you, providing you with emotional support as you go through the thing, turning towards each other, asking for help. There are a million concrete examples of, Ashton, you just moved. Who helped you with that? Um, well, this move, nobody. <laughs> right. Full stop. Now, in the middle of the move, the day of, you left my house, you went to Manhattan, and your good friend Katie offered to help spontaneously. And she was like, hey, yes. you want me to meet you at your new apartment? And that was incredibly helpful. And I had already peppered you on your way out the door. I was like, you have got to ask Katie for help. So you were preparing yourself to ask her for help because mm -hmm. in New York, you need to like, you need to be in two places at once. We don't have cars. We're like carrying our belongings on our back. There were a whole mess of logistical things that you needed help with. And mm -hmm. you were so reticent to ask for help. Those are some real concrete moments where I'm just like, oh my gosh, you have to ask for help. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you did urge me to ask for help. And guess what? It was super fucking helpful. And I am so grateful. So on that note, how can we improve our communication skills to make asking for help more accessible? In the way that we tend to move through life, trying to be very independent, when I would argue we are interdependent and we do need to rely on each other, that has to be okay. And it is okay. What we wind up doing is sharing with people facts about our life. Hey, I'm moving and never asking for help. And then further down the road, when people fail to offer to help, mm. sometimes we become resentful. Yes. Oh, ooh, that was a good point. And so I think first we have to underscore that that happens all the time. I mm. find that with my clients all the time. They'll come into session. They'll have had like... Something happened over the week, 
somebody failed to do something for them. And when I get done asking all the questions from all the different ways I ask the questions, what we learn, the two of us, is that they never actually articulated that they needed help with it. They implied it, or maybe they thought it was obvious. Again, going back to the move example, who would expect a woman to be moving or a man to be moving all their shit by themselves without a car? Nobody would expect that. And because we know nobody would expect that, it's very easy to become resentful when people don't offer to help. The problem is this. We don't want to be vulnerable. The primary reasons people give me for why they don't ask for help, they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to be told no. They don't want to be considered a drama queen. They don't want people to think that they're lazy and unwilling to find the answer themselves. So once they rule through all of those reasons, then what we're left with is they really just don't want to be vulnerable and don't want to be rejected. That's yeah. the essence of why we don't ask for help. We don't want to be told that we're too much. And so yeah. many of us are given that message either overtly or covertly. Let's be real. We love our friends and our family. We do. And we've all gotten a request for help and being like, oh, I love this person so much. And this is just really something I don't want to do, but I'll do it. And I think some people also feel myself included when you need to ask for help for certain things. You're like, oh, I know this is a big ask, or I know that this is going to induce a massive groan when they get this notification. Is that I just part of relationships? I think it is, A, and I also wonder if inoculating the person by stating that fact. So when you text the person that you're about to do the thing that you need them to help you with, acknowledging that it's a big ask, mm. acknowledging that if I were on the receiving end of this, there would be an internal groan and maybe your responses, and you're basically the only person that I would say yes to, but I mean, that might guilt somebody into feeling like they have to say yes. The bottom <laughs> line is this. Relationships are wildly inconvenient. They really are. We have to talk to each other when we don't feel like it. We have to visit each other, even though it costs money and is a time inconvenience and is, you know, all the things that relationships are. They are inconvenient. And when they're loving, it's because we've decided to take all those inconveniences and just call it the price you pay for being in a relationship, and we just fucking do it. We need each other. So we have to lean into vulnerability. And what I would say is this. I feel like people across the board would like to wait for their feelings to change before they change their behaviors. And what that looks like in this is they experience some exercises or drills with engaging in vulnerability until vulnerability is no longer a scary thing for them. Well, I can give that to a client, but the length of time it's going to take for your internal feelings to change so that your behaviors, there's no friction in the behavioral changes, it takes so long to change how we feel. It is so much faster to change our behaviors and begin amassing evidence that the new behaviors don't kill us, that the new behaviors aren't nearly as disturbing or uncomfortable as we imagine they're going to be. So... What I like to say is you just have to bite the bullet and ask for help, and then you'll begin to amass evidence that people will show up for you, that you're not a burden, and that it can actually be fun. Sometimes mm -hmm. doing a massively inconvenient thing together with someone you love can actually turn that thing into a fun thing.
Yeah. Is there a certain point that you feel people should know that they need to ask for help? For example, I'm feeling super emotionally disconnected or I'm feeling very inexplicably sad. Obviously, there are a lot of things at play that could contribute to this. At what point would you recommend that somebody reach out for help versus trying to sit and simmer with it? Like, is there a point where it's just like, oh, I'm feeling a little something here, a little scared, a little whatever it may be. When do you recommend people be like, oh, I I need to outsource here? Well, here's the good thing. If we're telling one another how we're feeling, and let's just say I'm telling you, hey, Ashton, I'm feeling not so grounded these days. I'm feeling really hypersensitive. And you hear me talking about this. And it's like, an off week, and then I rebound and I'm back to normal afterwards. You're not going to then, you're not going to sweat it. You're not going to suggest to me, hey, Darcy, do you think you should go to therapy? Or, hey, Darcy, have you spoken to Steph about this? Or, gee, I'm becoming worried about you. But if you hear me say over weeks and months or years that I am really struggling, now I've got somebody who can mirror back to me, hey, you know what? This is not a one-off. You think it's a one-off. You think it happens once a month. Mm. It doesn't. It happens more than once a month. You've got a partner here who can say to you, no, I've been living with you with this. And in a very supportive way, say, I'm worried about you. You shouldn't have to struggle like this for this amount of time. Mm -hmm. So there's something so protective in sharing our daily situations and struggles with another person because now you've got another set of eyes and ears who can weigh in and say, you know what? You've been going through this for a long time. I wonder if it's hormonal or whatever it is. Darcy, I wonder if it's oh my I wonder God. if it's time for the padded room, which <laughs> depending on the day of the week, it probably is for me. But yeah, I mean you shouldn't be you shouldn't be alone in that decision. Like we're so isolated. I also think that we're, and I'm working on this too, is when people genuinely ask us how we are, how are you? I need to stop saying, I'm fine. Or maybe I can say that and then say, you know what, honestly, I'm fine, but I'm feeling this, this, and that a little bit because I want to say it. I do. But there's something that kind of holds me back or I need some more like social warm up before I'm like, blah, 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 I have to say this. Right. Um, and so what you what that can do is that can be like dipping the toe into the water to see if the person's open to and capable of holding space for you in that yeah. moment. What I will sometimes say is, is that a real question or do you want the polite answer? Because mm. I can give you either. I can give you either one of them. Yeah. Well, that also it leads to another great question here is depending on the subject matter of what we're asking for help. Do we need to like prepare whoever we're wanting to confide in, because some some matters are heavy. A, B, the person that we're trying to confide in may not be in the best place literally physically to be there for you. Like they could be in the mm -hmm. middle of something and they're like, oh yeah. shit, this is a big deal. So is there a level of responsibility on us to prep the person that we're wanting to share with? I'll say this. If you're vulnerability averse, definitely make an appointment to have that conversation because what that does, and what I mean by have make an appointment, like I'll use you as my example. Hey, Ashton, I would love to talk about 
something has nothing to do with you, but I need your advice about something. Can you tell me when would be a good night or day or time for us to touch base, FaceTime, meet up for coffee, bottle of wine, whatever it is we're doing? And then you get to choose when you feel grounded. Now, note that what I said was it has nothing to do with you because there's nothing more frightening than hearing we need to talk. <laughs> we're working to destigmatize that. We're, we're ironically the name of the show. Um, but it's also intended to communicate the kind of thing that you only say to the people closest to you mm-hmm. or the people who are most important to you. You don't say to your neighbor or, or a stranger, we need to talk. Right, That's something right. that communicates like a level of intimacy in a relationship that can tolerate that. And when I ask you to tell me when is a good time, you know that you need to be prepared for a real conversation. So I'm a Mm -hmm. big fan. I like to show up really well for people. I'm a shrink. Mm -hmm. You know, it's my job. I want to show up. I want to exceed expectations emotionally, not just with my clients. That's a given, but with all the people in my life. And I will do a much better job if I have a heads up that you need to talk to me. And particularly if you can say it has nothing to do with you, if it has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. If it has to do with me, I put on my big girl pants and I manage my emotions until it's time to have that conversation. And if I can't, I say, let's talk now. But I believe that giving someone the subject and a heads up and a request that you need to talk to them, it can be so helpful in just clearing the path to the conversation so that the person shows up for you as their best self. And they know that they're going to have a conversation with you. They have to be grounded themselves. But think about how honoring that is. Think about how good it can feel to be on the receiving end of that hey, I want to talk to you about something. I wanted to pick Mm -hmm. your brain about something. Mm -hmm. Does that not do something for you or is it just me? No, I I actually, I feel very honored when my friends come to me or maybe even people who aren't even close friends, they just feel like they, they trust me or that I would be helpful in a situation. It makes me feel fulfilled in a lot of ways. And it makes me feel honored that they trusted me with this information and they trust my intel. And no, I don't think I've ever walked away from someone asking me for help thinking, well, that sucked. Right. You know? I'm so glad to hear that. Well, for the most part, I, I um, if there's physical labor involved, we'll chat. But <laughs> mentally, emotionally, I am, I can do this for you. And here's the thing. We each, you and I, we each have our own separate and like Venn diagram shared networks. So even if you don't have the answer... Maybe Outsource. someone in your network yeah. has the has the answer you can point your friend towards, or you can ask me, and I can use my network to find the answer. I often mm-hmm. feel like a hub with my clients. I mean, the random connections that I provide people with that have nothing to do with my day job, but just mm-hmm. because I've lived a lot of years and I've been lucky enough to run into really good people in my life and have some great sources... You know, I'm always plugging people in and connecting people because I don't have all the answers. But if I have the person who has the answer, it's just as good. Yeah. Don't ask Google. Ask Dr. Darcy. Or just kidding. Her email is about to blow up. No, it's not. No, it's not. And that is the name of the website. So it's Mm -hmm. great. All of which is to say we need to 
know that even if the person that we're talking to may not have the answers, they have other people that they can point us towards. That reminds me or inspired me to say that for people on the receiving end of somebody asking for help, because there have been times where people have asked me for help and I'm kind of at a loss. I think there's you should be able to say or you should train yourself to say, you know what? I can't give you the best advice right now, but I'm going to see if I can find someone who can help you or I'm here to listen to you whenever you need. Because I feel like when someone comes to you for help, sometimes people feel pressure or they feel like, oh God, I have to help them fix this problem and they may feel unequipped. It's a really good point. What I want to say is this. Most of the time when we turn to each other and we want to confide in one another, the best thing you can do as the listener is engage in mirroring and validating. So every few sentences, you paraphrase back to the person what you heard them say, which is an active listening skill. It lets them know that you're really plugged in, that you're not daydreaming, that you're not multitasking. It lets them know that you're here for them and that you're not trying to rush through the conversation and your head is not in your response. Rather, it's where they're at. It slows both people's nervous systems down and it's so grounding. So every few sentences, you hit the person back with. So what I hear you saying, Ashton, is sometimes when people ask you for advice, you can find yourself feeling so much pressure to deliver and like solve that problem for them that, and sometimes you don't have the answer. And is that okay? Right? And the person says, right or not. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, that makes a lot of sense to me because it's an honor and that honor comes with a weight to your shoulders when somebody wants to ask you advice. Mm -hmm. And that comes with a responsibility. And I can imagine that being a pressure-filled situation. However, if what you're doing in that conversation is mirroring back what you hear the person say, which I just demonstrated, and then finding something about that person's experience that makes sense to you, which I just did, which I'll dissect for you in 10 seconds. When I said to you, well, it makes sense to me that that would be quite a responsibility. And sometimes it could leave you feeling, I don't know, maybe even a little paralyzed. You don't have the answers Mm -hmm. and you have to have the answers. Like that is a heavy weight. So I just validated your experience. You don't need me to fix that. I kind of did though. I gave you a tool. Mirror and validate. That's the tool. But that is all we need from each other by and large, with the exception of like concrete, hey, do you have an egg? Person needs a fucking egg. Give them an egg. You know? With respect to that, you're not going to need to mirror and validate the person. But most often, when people turn to one another, that is what they're looking for. They want somebody who is grounded, who is truly plugged into them, who can demonstrate that they are actually hearing the words that they're saying and can validate that what they're experiencing makes sense to the other person. Mm -hmm. And to not be alone, to feel alone. Yes, which gives you the sum total that's a formula, and the total is we're together. Mm. The sum total is we're not alone. And in yeah. the absence of that, we are in our little pods. Think about how complex our society is. Can I talk about you for a second? Here I go. We'll see. Can I? <laughs> you, you come from a family of five. A mom, a dad, Ashton, and two brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Five people. Yeah. When the three of you turned 18, everybody went off to college. There's the expectation that each of you guys is going to graduate college, and by and large, shortly thereafter, if not exactly in line with your graduation, you're going to find your own dwelling. You're going to either live alone or you're going to live with some friends, 
and you're going to get a job. The job has to come first. So you're going to get a job, you're going to move out of the house, you're going to find your own dwelling, and then you're going to have to make enough money to meet your basic needs. I'm basically walking you through young adulthood. You're like, I've lived it. I don't want to even, <laughs> I don't want to remember what those are. I'm still recovering. Like. I know, I know. <laughs> and then as, as a matter of going through your daily tasks, you have to cook all your own meals. You have to shop for your own groceries. You have to do all of the tasks that are required to keeping your household together. And that happens to each of your siblings who are younger than you as they graduate. Mm -hmm. So now we've got five people because your, your parents divorced. Mm -hmm. So we've got five people who are all in their own dwellings, who are all trying to make a livable wage, who all have to engage in the same daily activities to keep everything going. Talk about a duplication of, of, of tasks. We used to call it a duplication of services in, in my profession. Like you wouldn't want two therapists because that's a duplication of services that's redundant. It's not a good use. Better to divide and conquer. How much more effective and efficient would we be if we were intergenerational, where there was a bigger house or one dwelling where multiple generations could live? And depending on where people are in their in their earning potential and in their physical capabilities, everyone pitched in so that they weren't all doing the same exact activities and all struggling in isolation. We live in little individual pods. That's the society that we have created. And what it does is it's, I mean, I don't have to tell you, how exhausting is it, Ashton? It is absolutely exhausting. Oh, every week, every week. Sometimes I sit and it just hits me. I can't even explain it. Sometimes this thought just comes into my brain. I'm like, wow, if I don't do my laundry, if I don't find something for myself to eat tonight, if I don't do anything, no one is here and going to A, do it for me and make sure that I'm doing it. And as a 27-year-old, it really sometimes just, it hits me and I'm like, wow, you're you're kind of like alone right now. You, you gotta do this. It's a terrible feeling. A, I am always here. I have a I washer know. and dryer. I will cook <laughs> you a meal. I will do the things. I think the way we have structured our society needs real deep examination because we're all exhausted and we all feel alone and we all miss each other. And what's the point of it all? What is the point of it all? We could pool our resources together. We could pool our resources together. We could find a way to still find privacy within the same dwelling. Maybe we don't live in the exact same house. Maybe we live in the same neighborhood. I was going to say, are you asking me to move in? Um, Absolutely. The, the room is here. It's already yours. <laughs> but yes, of course, you're always welcome to move in because it's crazy to expect people to be able to do this all by themselves. It is exhausting. How are you supposed to find a partner when you're so exhausted? How are you supposed hmm. to have the energy to date? How are you supposed to do all the things that make life worth living when you're so tired you really just want to Netflix and chill? Yeah. Well, they say it takes a village for a reason. Unfortunately, my village is mostly scattered throughout different geographical locations. But, you know, a lot of people can't always help that as well. Correct. I don't think I would be happy if I was still living back in North Carolina where my parents are, well, mm -hmm. where one parent is. It's tricky. We have options. We have goals and desires that we can't always maintain in our own villages. Right. 
but there's a price to pay for that, and we have right. to consider that. It, it has to be considered. Ultimately, we can't expect some magical moment to hit where we wake up one day and this is the day I feel brave enough to ask the people I love for help, to confide in them in ways that I haven't previously. We have to take the steps to do it. You can't wait for that level of bravery. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's taking action in the face of it, despite mm -hmm. the fear, and coming out of it with the evidence, oh, I did that. I could do that. It's and I so help. interesting. Right. It's so interesting because that feels like such a roadblock and a hurdle. But you're connecting with somebody mm -hmm. and you're getting help as an, as an outcome. And it makes me think back to any time I've ever asked for help. Have I regretted it? And I, I don't think that I have. Maybe I've had a moment where I'm like, maybe that wasn't the best person, but it opened up the door for me to then go to the next because I had already done it once. Exactly. So why and couldn't I do it again? That's your rehearsal. You rehearsed what you needed. And maybe in that conversation, you got greater clarity about either how to express your needs or that this is not the person who's going to be able to meet your needs. You'll find someone else. And the second right. time will be even easier. I, I think we have to practice turning towards each other in times of need. You know, when I think about the year that we're in and what's ahead of us, we have got to find a way to turn towards each other and maybe we'll be less inclined to turn against each other and away from each other, even in our differences in how we're going to carry out our choices throughout the year, especially coming up on an American election in November. I know, I know everybody's cringing over it. I grimaced. Nobody wants to deal with it. And I certainly don't either, but we have to practice finding things in common. And then maybe this will be an easier year for all of us. Yeah. From your lips to God's ears. So maybe here we hit pause. Would you read us out? We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling is a Sterling Standard production. This episode was produced by Darcy Sterling with editorial support from Vicky Vergolina. Editing by Bart Miguel. Our theme music is by Trending Music. Special thanks to Amanda Cristiani, Preston Smith, and Stephanie Sterling. If you like today's show, please follow us by searching We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a question you'd like for us to answer on a future episode, please send us an email to darcy at askdrdarcy.com. We'll be back on Tuesday with another episode packed with relationships and dating hacks you won't get anywhere else. And fun fact, we are getting questions in, so we will have an upcoming episode where we will go to the mailbag and we'll start answering. <laughs>